Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman. I'm chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic in the Midwest. And I'm delighted to have my colleague with me, Dr. Jeffrey Geske, expert in cardiac imaging and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in specific. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. There's a lot going on in the world of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which had always been, if you have symptoms, in our case, surgery, occasionally alcohol ablation. But tell us about the drugs that are in the pipeline and that are available now. There's been a lot of changes recently. After uh, many years of kind of no therapeutic clinical trials in this disease, in 2022, there's a new drug FDA approved for treatment of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, it's a new class of drug called uh, myosin modulator or myosin inhibitor. And um, the drug that's been approved, there's just one FDA approved right now, and it's called Mavacamptin. And uh, Mavacamptin is really designed to treat symptoms caused by obstruction in HCM. And like you said, um, we for a long time have said, you know, first of all, we'll start with lifestyle modifications, hydration. Uh, then we would go into kind of the baseline therapies of beta blockade, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockade. And then when we get medically refractory patients who still have severe obstruction driving their symptoms, then we would turn to subproduction therapy with the gold standard being myectomy and an alternative being that of alcohol septal ablation. And when the 2020 guidelines came out, obviously before the approval of this new drug, that's really kind of been the lay of the land. But now there's been just a lot of changes and evolutions of how we uh, look at obstruction and treatment of obstruction with this new drug around. So let's talk a little bit then about how this fits into the diagnostic and therapeutic, really, armamentarium. First of all, what stage, uh, who are the patients who you would think about mevacamptin as opposed to surgery or alcohol ablation? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I will say, we're kind of figuring this out as we go. There are, there are ongoing trials that are kind of exploring various uses of this. If we look at the, at the phase three clinical trials, so this is going to be Explorer and Valor, which are the two main phase three trials of Mavacamptin. And Explorer looked at uh, largely NYHA class two patients with severe obstruction. And Valor was a more symptomatic population, NYHA class three patients who were considering septal reduction therapy. That was actually a requirement for going into the trial was that they would uh, be considering whether or not to go to myectomy or alcohol septal ablation at that point. And what those trials have really shown is that in these patients with severe obstruction driving their symptoms, that it's quite effective at reducing the LVOT gradient. And uh, actually just this week, so uh, June 2023, uh, we saw that the uh, FDA approved a new expansion of Mavacamptin's prescription process that allows for knowing that Valor showed that Mavacamptin reduces the need for subproduction therapy. So patients who were on the drug within the study uh, after longer-term follow-up 
we're less likely to be uh, eligible still for self-reduction therapy. That's fantastic. Um, avoiding surgery seems attractive, but there's still the decision because surgery is established, it's effective. So how do you decide? Because even though we're learning as we go, there's a patient in front of you in clinic, you've tried beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, they're hydrating themselves, and they have a gradient that you've measured on echocardiography or some other imaging study. How do you decide um, with the patient? What kind of conversation do you have whether to use medication or surgery? Yeah, I think that um, this is not one size fits all. And um, really shared decision-making comes into this. I think at this point, we can say that Mavicampton is, uh, has an attractive safety profile, um, meaning that adverse events uh, are low. We do know that it reduces ejection fraction, as one would expect for a negative inotrope and that there is a small fraction of people where we see a robust reduction in ejection fraction. Varies a little bit depending on the trial that you look at, but somewhere on the order of around 5% of patients will develop an EF less than 50% during the course of treatment. Thankfully, that recovers with adjustment of therapy. But I think that there is not always patients that need to go to Mavicampton. Um, sometimes sept reduction remains the appropriate next step. And when I'm discussing this with a patient, I think it, when we have someone who's gone through the standard of care, lifestyle modifications, and uh, what I would think of as baseline medical therapy, and now we're considering a more advanced therapy, uh, then I'll want to know what their goals are. And if their goal is to avoid a procedure, even at the expense of taking another medication and much closer medical follow-up, well, then that seems like someone who's headed down the road of trying Mavicampton. Uh, on the other hand, if it's someone who says, listen, I'm so tired of seeing doctors, I want to take less medications, and I want a mechanical fix to my obstruction, then that's someone that really would value this, uh, the SEPT reduction therapy. And they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes a patient may try Mavicampton and then realize that the drug-drug interactions are prohibitive for them, or that the follow-up is bothersome or onerous, or that, that they didn't get the symptom relief that they wanted from that medication, well, then uh, septal reduction therapy remains an option after the drug is washed out. So suppose you're um, not someone who has a, a large cohort of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, and your patient is prescribed mevacamptan, at a, a center of excellence for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy management. What do you need to know in terms of drug interactions, in terms of monitoring, potential side effects, how to advise the patient? What kind of guidance do you give patients for the follow-up on the medication and physicians? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's something that becomes increasingly relevant as we see this medication in practice. Um, so for prescribers, there is a REMS program. So there's a mandatory program uh, through the FDA that um, is needed in order to follow this drug because it's just been FDA approved. And so prescribers need to be enrolled in that REMS program in order to give this medication. And really there's close follow-up that's required. So an echocardiogram is needed before initiating therapy to prove that ejection fraction is normal and that there's severe uh, outflow tract obstruction. And then there's very close echocardiographic monitoring. So we said already that there's a baseline pre-therapy echo that's needed, but then an echo is needed at four weeks, 
eight weeks, 12 weeks, and every three months thereafter, every 12 weeks thereafter, which means that there's seven echocardiograms at least in the first year of therapy. That's a, that's a, a large amount of echocardiographic monitoring. And so I think patients and their the local providers need to be aware of that need for monitoring. Uh, and then I think another key aspect, even beyond that echocardiographic monitoring, is that there are some significant drug-drug interactions with Mavicamptin. And really this relates largely to uh, CYP3A4 uh, inducers and inhibitors, as well as CYP2C19 inducers and inhibitors. And while that's a mouthful, what it oftentimes translates to is that some fairly commonly used medications like omeprazole, Prilosec, or esomeprazole, Nexium, or a lot of commonly used antibiotics can have serious interactions with this medication. And so I, I've told patients that I place on this medication, if if you, someone's going to place you on any sort of new medication or you're going to take anything new over the counter, I want you to reach out to me first just to get the okay to make sure it doesn't interact with your medication. Really something that's important to be thoughtful about. I'm going to ask you to speculate for a second because as we know in our own practice, the artificial intelligence ECG can detect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we've seen that that starts to normalize on therapy. And it also detects left ventricular dysfunction. And it's too early to know, but do you think potentially that could help in the follow-up of these patients? Um, what are your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, I think the um, recognition that echocardiographic monitoring is so necessary at the, at the present and how that evolves as we gather more and more safety data and we have longer term use will be interesting to see. But I do think that that's quite labor intensive. It's quite resource intensive. And so coming up with a way that we can monitor this in an easier fashion certainly is attractive. I think that your inquiry with regards to AI applications is certainly one that is being actively explored. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if I can uh, spoil any punchlines or things, but I do think that this is something that we, we need to ensure we fully looked at because it may really help with uh, the, the monitoring of these new drugs. Now, we've been speaking predominantly about Mevacamptan, of course, but there are new drugs in the pipeline not yet approved in the United States. Tell us a little bit about that and what the potential differences and promise of one versus the other will be. Yeah, I think the, the, the big one that's coming down the pipeline is not Mavacamptan, but called Afficamptan. And uh, Afficamptan is presently in a phase three clinical trial called Sequoia. And so we don't have any data yet from Sequoia that's, that's available, um, but this is looking at Afficamptan for treatment of dynamic alpha tract obstruction in symptomatic HCM patients. So the initial studies are looking at a, a similar indication to what has been studied for Mavicamptan. And there are, I think, two key differences in, um, in drugs. And one is that Afficamptan has a shorter half-life. And um, the clinical take-home from that is that if dose adjustments are needed, the um, kind of seeing those dose adjustments takes less time. And so that may be an advantage uh, for Afficamptan. Uh, the other is that at present, there are no known drug-drug interactions. And so um, for someone who maybe has gastroesophageal reflux disease and is struggling 
um, to be off of their therapy that they needed for, for that indication, going with afficamptin may be an alternative to someone who is struggling to take mavicamptin because of those drug-drug interactions. And so I think that that will be an, an interesting area to see how these play out uh, if afficamptin is FDA approved in the future. I don't know that we'll have any head-to-head -head data on afficamptin versus mavicamptin for quite some time, or who, who knows if that will ever happen. But I do think that uh, it's exciting to hear that there are alternatives and new drugs coming down the pipeline. In addition, it will be great to see as, as we expand the study of when to use these drugs. You know, should we be using them earlier because we've seen improvements in biomarkers like BNP? Should we be using it for non-obstructive disease? And that's an active trial that's ongoing for mavicamptin and one that's being started for afficamptin as well, because we've seen in some of the longer-term data for the mavicamptin trials that diastolic dysfunction improves. And how does that translate then to a non-obstructive cohort? It will be, it'll be fascinating to see what else these drugs can do. I think that's probably been one of the most exciting possibilities that we may have a pharmacologic treatment for diastolic dysfunction that's completely novel compared to other treatments that have been considered for that in the past. What are the unanswered questions regarding these new therapies that you'd like? We've touched on a number of them already, but are there any others that, that you'd like to comment on? And we've also talked about the issue of you know, deciding on alcohol ablation and myectomy. But as you address unanswered questions, I'll also ask you to speculate whether you think that the mechanical interventions will uh, wane over time and whether we'll see pharmacologic replacing them or do you think there'll be a place for both? Yeah, so I, I think that as with many medical discoveries, answers drive more questions. And so uh, I, I think we, we want to know more about long-term data. You know, there's been... Um, through the Explorer trial, we now have some 84-week data that's come out. But really, for septal reduction therapy and myectomy, we have you know decades of data. Yeah. So how how do these drugs perform long term, and what do we see as far as um, LV systolic dysfunction outcomes? Like um, for someone who's been on this drug for a year, does the risk of developing significant LV systolic dysfunction go down, or is it ever present? And um, how will we see this uh, drug affect remodeling? Um, will we see that there is hypertrophy regression? Will we see that there uh, are changes in left ventricular configuration beyond reduction of outflow tract obstruction? So I think there's a lot of different questions that are in the mix here. Um, scar burden, left atrial size, pulmonary hypertension, a, a lot of different things uh, that will come about. And, even even things that sound at first uh, straightforward, but sex differences in in therapies. We know that women with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy present with more severe phenotype, that they have worse obstruction by the time they're referred, that they're more symptomatic, that they have more pulmonary hypertension, and that they have worse all-cause survival. And so do we see that they have the same response to this therapy as to others? So, I, I think there are a lot of questions that need to be answered there. And, How about arrhythmias, Jeff? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, look at who I'm talking to, right? Uh, and and I, I think that will be a, a wonderful area to explore more and and uh, to see. How, how does this affect outcome data? Is it, 
be it ambulatory monitoring of arrhythmias, be it uh, appropriate ICD discharge, be it um, sudden death. Uh, and I think that really requires longer term data because most patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy do fairly well as far as survival. We need long term data to understand if there are mortality benefits. Yeah. Now, to your second question uh, about sept reduction therapy, I think that there will always be a role for sept reduction therapy. And we know when there is uh, concomitant structural disease, so primary mitral regurgitation, primary valve abnormalities, that this is an important technique, that it's an important operative intervention. And we also know that obstruction can happen at many levels. And while we've really studied mavicamptin for treatment of outflow tract obstruction, midventricular obstruction is a real entity as well. And seeing how uh, drugs do for midventricular obstruction or whether that's something that requires uh, procedural intervention remains important. And to me, seeing how new guidelines put together this new tool in the toolbox will be really important. Uh, I think that because the guidelines came out before uh, FDA approval, and since we've seen this renaissance of therapy, I, we would expect that a new guideline update is forthcoming to help integrate this into our treatment protocol. Dr. Jeffrey Geske, thank you for reviewing this fascinating topic. Really um, exciting times for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and uh, likely far beyond as we learn how to use these medications and who may benefit and how to monitor them. Thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.